Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to The Ezra Klein Show. I am Ezra Klein, and my guest this week is Jose Andres, who is one of the truly great chefs working in America today. He is the mind behind Bizarre, behind Haleo, behind Minibar, behind the new fast, casual, mostly vegetarian chain Beefsteak. He is a brilliant, strange, super creative guy. He worked with Fran Adria at El Bulli in its early days, so he had a front row seat to the beginning of the molecular gastronomy revolution. He is, as much as anyone, really responsible for D.C.'s resurgence or emergence as an actually great food city. As part of that, D.C. just got its first Michelin rankings, and sure enough, there was Minibar Jose's place with two Michelin stars, which was pretty cool. He is a, a, a really interesting thinker on management, on food, on whether it's ethical to eat meat, on how to run big organizations, on how to be creative, on how to use other fields, innovations in your own field. This is a conversation that goes in a lot of directions as he does. We talk about his charity work. We talk about his business. We talk about cooking, what one dish he wishes people can make. He's also a very just decent hearted and and emotive guy. You'll hear that in this podcast. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I think you will too. There's a lot to to chew on here and and in some cases quite literally. (laughs) One note about this discussion, it is recorded before the election in the the final weeks of the race. Um, We are obviously listening to it after the election. I don't think anything in here is uh, changed by the outcome, but just keep that in mind when you hear us discussing Trump. As always, Please rate the show on iTunes, share it with your friends on Facebook and on Twitter. Check out my other podcast, The Weeds, where Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff and I talk deep in the weeds of policy and politics. And continue to email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. I really enjoy hearing the folks you want to see on the program. So all that said, this is a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here is Jose. Thank you for being here. Super happy to be here. How are you doing? One more day in paradise. You're going to Haiti. On my way to Haiti. Uh, yep. How long are you going to be in Haiti for? Six, seven days. What uh, are you doing there? Well, a few years um, ago, after the earthquake, I had this kind of need to, to go and see on my own what was happening. And I brought with me solar kitchens, and we began feeding people through camps. And, and I was not there really helping anybody. I was there learning, doing my MBA of how we can be helping people Mm -hmm. after a catastrophe like that. So five, six years later, I have a foundation there that we created, World Central Kitchen. We have over 14, 15, 16 different projects. We have now hundreds of kitchens. We've helped 
create in schools around Port-au-Prince. Let's say that we have an infrastructure and the hurricane hit the Western Haiti. It's been super hard on many people. And what we're going to go there is just to start hopefully feeding around thousand people a day in a little camp that nobody seems is taking care of yet. And again, for me, it's not helping, it's more learning, learning on how to be ready so we can help people when things like this happen. Let me ask you a question about this because you, you've thought about it deeply. Why do you think it is better through the foundation to create these programs, to create these schools, as opposed to simply giving people in Haiti the money that they would cost, just handing them the cash and letting them do what they feel they need to do with it? Yeah, I know this, this is very much one of the conversations about how to help people. Mm -hmm. Listen, my foundation, let me tell you what we do at Wall Center Kitchen. We had uh, one orphanage. The orphanage needed bread. They were spending a lot of money buying the bread. We had a building within the, the orphanage. We did the investment. We built a bakery. We trained eight Haitians to be bakers. We began producing the bread at the fraction of the cost that the orphan orphanage was spending before. They began feeding the children, all the workers. But now, three years later, the orphanage is making between $1,500 and $2,500 a month selling the extra bread they make around the suburbs of Port-au-Prince. You see, this is the type of foundation I'm creating. Now you, not only arriving and, and, and giving the money and then disappearing, but investing super strategically one project at a time in neighborhoods that nobody takes care of because they are off the beaten mm -hmm. path. And so that's what we're doing. There, I am partnering with the mayor of this uh, town in Lekai. I'm following their guidance, their leadership, but we are providing a food truck, we are providing the food, we're going to start feeding people. Uh, so to a degree, we are kind of a different type of NGO. We are not going here, white men telling them what to do. We are there more listening and then trying to apply the best remedy mm -hmm. to the situation. So, so let me go back in time. Let's get to how, how you got here. Where did you grow up? I am a boy, as you may see by my accent, born in northern part of Spain, Asturias. Beautiful green, full of trees. How big of a city is that? Asturias is the region, the, the capital is Oviedo. Even sometimes people use Asturias just for both. It's about one million people. Sounds like if you will say Vermont or Maine. Mm -hmm. Very early on, my father and mother moved to Barcelona. They were nurses working in hospital. So I arrived in Barcelona when I was five years old. I speak fluent Catalan. I write Catalan. There is where I grew up as a child. And I learned to cook in Barcelona. Uh, I went to school, but I had a lot of hours uh, studying on that culinary school. So I, I will say it was a dropout. <laughs> Just they gave me the title a year ago, 30 plus years after I was supposed you, to graduate. You got the honorary degree. I got the honorary degree finally. Or did you go back and finish your classes? Well, I, I, <laughs> I didn't pass English, accounting, and cooking. So, and I think I'm very good at numbers, and I think I know something about accounting and English well. It's not like I'm an <laughs> English major, but at least I can express myself. You can do it. So why did you decide to go into cooking at that time? You, you were interested 
at that period? What made you interested? What's the moment when... My, my father was super influential and mother. At home in Spain, you had to cook because it was the way of life. You didn't have the extra money to spend in restaurants. Even we didn't have fast casual restaurants that you could eat cheaper. You will eat at home. That was mm-hmm. the way of life. You will go every day for the bread, every day for the fish, every day for the meat and the vegetables and the fruit. That's the way it was. Every day you will buy. So you will see... I love cooking at your home, and you will be part of the culinary celebration and sitting at the table and eating together every night in the family. So I guess this is very early on on your blood. But my father will love to cook many Sundays, and he will cook a big paella, this traditional mm-hmm. rice dish, and that the name comes from the pan where it's cooked traditionally on over an open fire. And my father always put me in charge of doing the cooking on making the fire. He will never let me put the spoon into the paella with the chicken or the rabbit or whatever he was mm-hmm. cooking. And one day I got very upset. Daddy, why are you not letting me cook, steering? Why are you always putting me, gathering the wood and making the fire? One day I got upset. He threw me out. We'll talk later. He came after the meal was finished. Say, my son, I, un- I understand you may be upset, but actually I gave you the most important task. Anybody could be cooking with me, but nobody could do the fire like you could. He told me, my son, if you control the fire, only then you can be a, a great cook. When you control the fire, you can be anything you want. That was a very big lesson in my life. So what does it mean to control the fire? Control the fire sometimes is used to see what is under the water that the eye is not able to see. When I see the ocean now that I uh, used to be scared of the ocean, I became mm-hmm. a scuba diver. Yes, you can be a sailor. I've been a sailor in the Spanish Navy. I've been sailing the world in a beautiful format. It was beautiful to understand the wind and see the birds and see the sun and see the stars that will guide you and all the things you learn. But what's something missing? In this case, is, is what is the extra thing? What is what the eye is not able to see? I think that's what's controlled the fire. And I think that's what we, we spend the most time as humans searching. Sometimes we feel like alone that we don't know where we're going. And it's because sometimes we have a hard time knowing what's our fire. Everybody should spend time in searching for what's that fire that keeps you going. So I want to go back, and I want to continue with your, your, your path here, but I want to go back to what you said about cooking at home. I brought a statistic I thought you would be fascinated by. I found it today. For the 18th straight month, and by the widest margin ever in America, restaurant sales in September were greater than grocery store sales. So for 18 months, Americans have been spending more in restaurants than in, in groceries, which has not happened before, and it keeps getting wider. W- what do you think when you hear that? I mean, it's good for you, right? It's good for business. Well, for a <laughs> restaurant owner, chef, uh, it's great that people go out. But the truth is that owning a restaurant is a great form of entrepreneurship. Almost anybody can have four walls in a kitchen mm-hmm. with no a lot of investment. It depends where you open. And this is good, but then it's the same people, and every day is more businesses. There's going to be a challenge in the years to come. But what these numbers are telling you is that the world is a, it's a fascinating place where we can be doing hundreds of things in a day. And cooking is great, and the people that love cooking at home with family, they do it like a religion. Mm-hmm. But the truth is that going out it's also like a religion. I'm a person that I'm always torn 
between going to the market, shopping, and coming home, and going out to the new restaurant or to my old favorite restaurant. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> this is a complicated, fascinating dilemma. And I think what you see there is that dilemma. It's a lot of opportunity there, and quite frankly, people forget, but even if people complain that restaurants may be expensive at the time, I challenge anybody to try to recreate the same meal that they are having in a restaurant. And you tell me if you are able to do it close to the same price you pay in the restaurant buying the products in your home. This is a fun challenge, and I can guarantee you more than once can even cost you more shopping. Certain oh, I've definitely products paid more. At the supermarket than paying at the restaurant. Mm -hmm. This I can guarantee you. Although it depends on the the kind of food, right? I agree. There's some that there's some where you can make it at home and somewhere. But I can tell you difficult. that sometimes when I buy the great local tomatoes, that gazpacho that my wife makes forever, my wife sometimes says, "Can we buy lobster today?" Because when the lobster is super cheap and the tomatoes are super expensive, at the end it's not like we think like every vegetable is cheaper. Vegetables is a fascinating moment because it should be something affordable, mm -hmm. like used to be when I grew up in Spain. But to feed your family out of vegetables in America can be a challenging thing to do at an affordable rate. It can be sometimes more expensive, the vegetable itself, than the true meat protein. And this is a fascinating problem that we are going to have to find a solution. So something refreshing to me in your comments here. There is within the movement that's kind of loosely called foodies, there's a real preachiness about people cooking at home. It's almost absorbed on a moral dimension that if you're not cooking at home, you're, you're, you're doing something wrong. And it's always seemed to me that given how time-stressed people are, given how long they work, given the family care they have to do, that if you want people to eat healthy, you're eventually going to have to find ways for that to happen within the context of the habits they already have, which is eating out, which is eating prepared foods. You don't seem to be caught in that tension. Well, I'm a guy that uh, I say that, yes, I agree with you. It's a lot of preaching in our business. I love local and I love seasonal, but I'm not the guy that preaches that to heart because the same way we drink wine that was speak in September of eight years uh, ago and comes from France, and we're drinking it in Virginia. There's nothing wrong with that. But some people drinking that wine from France, eight-year-old, out of season, is preaching to you that everything has to be seasoned. Yes. Or the same person preaching to you that those peaches came from Chile, and I shouldn't be doing this, is wearing jeans from Cambodia. So I always say that in the way we're going to be feeding America, and the way we're going to be feeding the world, we're going to have to be super pragmatic. If you go too much to the right or too much to the left, like in uh, same as in politics, probably you are extreme. So pragmatism to fit America and to fit the world is a word we're going to have to be using more. So I believe I'm very pragmatic on that. I try to be pragmatic. Back to your path here. What was your first job in food? When was the first time somebody paid you to cook? Actually, first money I ever made was after a political event, and they gave me 5,000 pesetas. It was like, my God, $50 back in 1884, 85, helping tear down the theater, everything. They got all the chairs that they had to be put away after the political event. That's the first time I ever made money 
as a person that was not my father giving me a few dollars for something I did. But then after that, everything always was restaurants. I probably was 16th and I used to get 5,000 pesetas, which pesetas are, they don't longer exist in Spain. And that was to work uh, seven, eight hours helping in a conference center to make hundreds of meals. And, and so my first money, my real first money was cooking. Couldn't be any other way. What did you like about it? You are liberated. And I see it now with my daughters. You are not anymore asking your mom and your dad for for the money. I but about think. the cooking? Well. Or was uh, it the money? Was it the nice thing about the cooking? For me, it was, yeah. uh, was a little bit of, of both. You're young and all of a sudden you, your, your hard work is having a payoff. This is an amazing, unique experience. Obviously, the cooking to me, being so young and already, you know, I was with two, three great chefs that they told me so many things, but we were not too many people to feed hundreds of persons. The mechanics of waking up at 6 a.m., being in the kitchen at 7 and knowing that by 1 you had to have, you know, 1,000 meals ready was a fascinating challenge to me. To me, it was something like uh, always I'm mesmerized. I still, when I see my restaurants up and running or any restaurant in America, or any restaurant in the world, I'm always mesmerized by how many things have to happen Mm -hmm. from the harvest to the fishing, all the way to the chef, all the way to the waiters delivering the food, all the things that have to happen to be able to bring one plate of food to somebody. When I think about it, I'm still mesmerized. I'm I'm fascinated. It seems simple when you see the mechanics, but I'm amazed that we've been able to put together the systems to feed 7 billion people a day, even still we have a big part of those that are hungry, that still we are able to achieve this. To me, is one of the most amazing achievements of humanity. So from one plate I cook on 7th and E in my Halle restaurant, all the way to the meals prepared in the heart of Cambodia, feeding the poor, it's something astonishing to me uh, of all the mechanics and all mm-hmm. the things that have to happen to feed so many people. What, what are the skills that early on you learned that are, are different than the skills you learn as a home chef? A lot of people who cook good food at home, I think, will look at it and say, I, I could open a restaurant. But you're talking here about the bulk, about the pressure, about the deadlines. What makes a good cook professionally? I think my biggest lesson is being at Reddit. Uh, we are only as good as the people we have around us. That's sacred. I was... Over a year in the Spanish Navy, and as I told you, and, and, and sailing the world, 300 crew, four mast, moving that amazing big boat, the Juan Sebastián del Cano, through the middle of the Atlantic, using the winds. It required the 300 people working at once, like one person, like one unit. That's probably the big lesson I learned, that at the end, I can probably go quicker alone, faster alone. But the fascinating thing is when all of you get there together to feed people, to make a restaurant run, I learned that, or you bring everybody along and nothing is sustainable. Nothing will really happen. You may be able to get away today by not working as a team. You may be able to get away next week, but in the long run will not be sustainable. So for me, the biggest lesson that I bring from the Spanish Navy is this, that working alone, you can be 
moving that boat towards that horizon of success that we all hope for. And so what is the set of positions that take you into being a chef, right? You, you begin, you're 16, you're doing what sounds like basically catering. Yep. How do you begin climbing that ladder till you're doing molecular gastronomy? Yeah. Which, I was almost doing all at once because I would work in the morning doing this kind of catering and then working in a two-star Michelin at night. And at 16. Yeah, and skipping classes. Twin. The reason I went uh, school. And you're a two-star Michelin now, I heard yesterday. I got two-star Michelin. Congratulations. Can you believe that one? It's amazing. Listen, I used to walk in front of Michelin At star. minibar, I should say, for, for people mini to know. Minibar. I used to walk in front of restaurants by the front door or by the back door, by the alley, but trying just to get a glimpse of the door opening, the different smells that will come from every different restaurant, sometimes with many years and different generations, family generations behind it. Some of them with the menu in the door that I will be sometimes there an hour just reading the menu. And then I start working in Michelin restaurants. No? Like the most important to me was Jean-Louis Nichel to star in Barcelona, one of the the best French chefs in Spain back in the 80s, early 90s. But my moment in life was when I met Ferran Adria and I began working summers with him. In How what, did you meet him? I was working in as a summer job in this uh, seafood restaurant, high-end, but seafood restaurant for tourists. And he will come very late sometimes to eat uh, gamba salajillo, the garlic shrimp, that now is the number one selling item at Jaleo. There I will barely say hi because, you know, he was like this young chef that was doing crazy things in a crazy restaurant in the middle of nowhere in the mountains by the water. And one day the mother of a friend who they own a little bar in that seafood town, Rosas, where I was spending my summers working and making some money and learning, she paid us money to go to El Bulli so his son could really... Uh, learn about uh, about more sophisticated cooking and hopefully convince him to be in the restaurant business of the family. So the mother pays us to go hmm. very much and me to take uh, her son to El Bulli. I ate at El Bulli and that moment I saw that was something fascinating and something unique. Next summer I was there and I was able to be there two, three summers. He became the number one uh, most influential chef without a doubt in late 20th century, early 20th. 21st century, a fascinating guy. more than a chef. Uh, everybody should be Googling Ferran, Adria, El Bulli. But what he's done for cooking is something we'll, we will only understand probably in the 22nd century. So I had the good fortune, I think through you actually, to, to go to El Bulli before it closed. And it was extraordinary. But I'm late. What was it doing at the beginning? What are the things that we take for granted that happened there? Well, what happened there was... Ferran was super young, was 23. He didn't go to school to learn. He was a dishwasher. He didn't work for any big chef. He was in that restaurant working. The owner of the restaurant began sending him to France. He began reading books. And this guy, through the prism of his brain, was able to start seeing what nobody else was seeing. He began getting traditional Catalan ingredients and traditional Catalan dishes and began through his prism again, showing them in a different way. He will one day see that the best sauce was only squeezing the head of the shrimp into a glass. 
he began saying, why do we have to make a sauce for five hours when the best sauce is right there in the head of the beautiful gamba, the shrimp head? He began not complicating things, but actually simplifying things. But to be able to understand that simplification, you had to be a genius. That's what he did. It's like this glass of water I have in front of me. How many glasses of water we drink in our lifetime? How many times we stop for a second understanding the power we may have if we will understand what's around water and that you can freeze it and that you can boil it and then you can get vapor and that when you freeze it, you can be doing so many things without those ice cubes. And that when it's in liquid state, you can be doing so many other things if you are able to understand water surface tension. And if it gets vapor, you can be creating, well, a dish that smells, well, you can use it for cooking dumplings. We go through life drinking water, and we don't think twice about it, what water potential is. With Ferran, we learn that you had to stop and trying to understand the ingredients, speak to the ingredients. So by speaking to them, they will tell you who they are and then give you the power to start creating and moving cooking forward. Was, was there a process that was undertaken with that? I mean, did somebody come in one day and say, like, this week we're trying to figure out the peach? Like, how did it work? Very much was this way. You need to understand I was there very early. I was super young. I was there already going to 17th, 18th, 19th, super young. And Ferran was 23. So El Bulli, over the last 20, 30 years, has had an amazing progression, and I was already in America. But what happened, the seed of what El Bulli became already was planted back in my times. So yes, everything is a process. Everything is a scientific process. You have to be super methodical. But at the end, everything is about knowledge. But what was that method? Like, Give me an example. Well, creativity in any field, but especially in culinary field, we can be getting a book that comes from the 16th century. And you may be finding there a recipe, a recipe that somehow has totally disappeared from today's, let's say, Spain or today's America. Bringing that recipe back to life is part of applying research to cooking. Let's say we do a visit to Harvard or to MIT, and we're able to meet John Bush, at MIT, that is one of the biggest experts on water surface tension. And he's able to share with us the potential of water surface tension to be used for culinary techniques. And by learning water surface tension, we learn that we can be using flowers like pipettes, that when they are on top of the surface of the water, as you lift up, the water doesn't let the flower escape. But in the process, the flower closes itself and takes an entire drop of water with it. This is the beginning of what can become a new utensil or can become a new dish. That's another way of creating. I may go to Seattle to work with Del Chihuly, and Del Chihuly will show me one-on-one how to blow glass. And out of that weak collaboration, my team and I, we began creating dishes using isomalt, substituting glass by a sugar called isomalt, and start applying the same techniques to achieve blow sugar, look like glass, and creating the same gardens full of beautiful, colorful glass that he's done all around the world. You see, this in this sense was 
an artistic collaboration, but also with technique. Or I may go to LA and work with Gustavo Dudamel. And Gustavo may challenge me with three symphonies, like we did three years ago. And out of those three symphonies, I'm learning about the symphonies, where they were created, by whom they were created, if they were the soundtrack of a movie, we go and we develop three different dishes. You see, that's the method. It's only to move away from our comfort zone. It's not going anymore to the market. Not like going to the market is not exciting, but it's moving away from your comfort zone and start going far away from who we are. Far away is going to MIT. Far away is going to the glass studio of Del Chihuly. Far away is going to the LA Philharmonic, Gustavo Dudamel. Far away is working with scientists. That's what we do, and that's what El Bulli began doing. So Stephen Johnson wrote a book called Where Good Ideas Come From, which I think you really like, actually. But one of the things he talks about in that book is adjacency, that what happens for innovation is people who have knowledge in one field, they rub up against the knowledge of another field. They begin to develop the techniques of something else and see then how to revolutionize the place they originally were. And it sounds to me like what you're saying, the method, the process, the innovation of El Bulli was was to find techniques and knowledge outside cooking and then reapply them to cooking. That's a great, uh, short, precise, and powerful way to describe it. That's what we do at Minibar. That's what they do at ThinFood Group for give me 20, an example of one dish at, years. Give me an example of a dish at Minibar that had that genesis. Huh. Okay, I'm going to show you one that is super simple. My wife makes a family recipe that her mother taught her. With zucchini. She peels the zucchini, she boils the zucchini, she takes away the seeds, I don't know why, she puts it in the blender, some of the same water of boiling that zucchini, she puts a little bit of kind of a Philadelphia cheese, yes, I use Philadelphia cheese in my home, some olive oil, some salt, and it's a beautiful velvety, super flavorful zucchini taste that my daughters love. My team was one day researching books with me at home. And I told them that I wanted to recreate the soup of my wife, but mini bar. And we were thinking caviar, which has been done kind of before, but, but the key was not in what she was doing. The key was in what she was not doing and what she was not using. My team and I would realize that all these seeds that she was scrapping when the zucchinis were tiny. And when you began cleaning one by one, that is a task that can take hours. We began gathering together and we saw that when you had an entire spoonful of those seeds, you'll put them in your mouth and will be a beautiful texture and flavor of zucchini that was on actually the discarded seeds. And we realized that also the water that the zucchini, once we put it to rest, was releasing. That simple water, like we do with tomato, but we didn't do it ever before with zucchini, was something that was super tasty. This and being a mini bar, a super beautiful mousse of that zucchini with the zucchini seeds caviar and a beautiful gelatin covering everything of that water that was going away. This is not technique. This is not uh, working with scientists. This is not working with an artist. And this is actually probably the heart of El Bulli. Never take anything for granted. 
and you have to keep being like a little kid, a kid that is interested in everything. That's a matter how nonsense is. Or don't do something because somebody told you not to do it. Every single recipe in the world says, discard the tomato seeds. The tomato seeds, people of America, are the tastiest part of any tomato. Don't throw them away. What Ferran told me was, we can never keep doing things in the way we were told. Yes, we need to respect tradition, but we should almost be second-guessing everything. That's the only way forward. There's something of mindfulness practice in here. I read a lot into meditation and mindfulness, and a lot of the precepts there are just to study something that you normally take for granted very, very, very deeply. And that sounds like a lot of what you're saying here, that a lot of the breakthroughs and a lot of the innovations came from taking something that you had learned to filter out and just stopping on it for a very long period of time to find what was good in it. Agree. Or even better, one of the best things is when you learn parking. In creativity, parking is a very important tool. How to park. In real life, people usually are terrible at parking. In life, we need to learn how to park. Parking is when you have something, an idea, that is there, but you keep hitting your head against it. Or something like is there that you like a lot, but you need to learn how to park. But then remember where you park it and where you put the keys and go back weeks, months, or years later. Something fascinating happens when you are able to do that. What you thought was not possible, all of a sudden, new possibilities show up. This is super important in, in creativity. And in my team, my team and I, we have a lot of things that we park. And usually when we go back to them, always something else shows up. It's very important to learn how to park. So for, for years after this, Spain becomes the center of a lot of modern, great innovations in, in food and gastronomy. But a couple years later, you leave and come to the United States. Why? Well, I finished my military service. I work again with Ferran. My destiny was keep cooking. And, but then was Olympic Games. I love uh, Catalan companies investing or doing things in America. It was two, three restaurants that were opening in the 90s. One here in Washington, D.C., in La Taberna de la Lavardero, a, a great classic a Spanish restaurant with many, many different ones in Madrid and around Spain. And was this restaurant called El Dorado Petit that was a star Michelin restaurant in Barcelona. Some people were saying it was the best restaurant in Spain at the time. Very classic Catalan cooking, but modernized. That the owner, uh, Luis Cruañas, uh, was opening in New York. And I always wanted to work there when I was back in Spain. And I got the opportunity to come as a cook. They gave me a one-year visa, the E2 visa. And I came. My idea was to come six months. I came for six months and new things kept showing up. And I never looked back. I always loved America since the times I came with the Spanish Navy to Pensacola and to New York. I came almost like a true immigrant Dutch pilgrim. As my daughter told me one time, are we exactly immigrants or pilgrims? We are Latino, Hispanic, but you came on a boat. 
who are we? I say, I, I, I am both. And to me, a, a moment in my life was coming on high up on the mast on that ship, the Spanish Navy, under the Barasano Bridge with Ellis Island, the Estate of Liberty. I don't think I understood at the beginning the meaning of that. But to me, to this day, is one of the most important moments in my life. I knew that moment that I wanted to come back uh, to America. And when I got the first opportunity, I came. What did you like about being here? What was different? Maybe I'll put it that way. To me, America in the distance always was this, uh, uh, this country with these people, with this abundance of creativity. Creativity that obviously is very simple to see how America sends that message, no? By putting a man in the moon in the same year that I born or by watching basketball players doing amazing things with a ball or movies that a young kid just makes you dream that everything is possible. I wanted to be part of America in a very strange way. Uh, I think in Europe we are all very very attracted to things that are America. When I landed in America, I got that sense. Used to be a young boy walking the streets of Manhattan with that energy that flows through the city, through the streets, like if they are people, like if they are blood on the veins of a beautiful arm, that everything is moving. Uh, I wanted to be part of that action. So I think that what, what got me caught with, with America. I wanted to be part of that energy, of that creativity. And how did you end up in D.C.? Well, I was on my way to Japan because I got an offer to go to Tokyo to work as a cook in a Spanish restaurant. And two friends of mine were there and they were looking for more people. But I got a phone call from Washington, my partners, Roberto Alvarez, Rob Wilder, and Cashion. They were thinking about opening a Spanish restaurant to do tapas. I came. I came to Washington. I think I love to see the White House, Capitol Hill, George Washington, Lincoln. I got caught by the city. I will not say it was super exciting compared to New York in any way or form, but I like um, I like my partners. I like the, the, the challenge of saying, let's open a Spanish restaurant. Like, I think we should be opening a Spanish restaurant. And, and I came in January 1993. And that was Haleo. And we opened Haleo on 7th and e. We opened Haleo around May 93. And, and I think to this day, I remember the one, some of the first guests I had. One was Jean-Louis Paladin, the great French chef that really set the tone of what French cooking was supposed to be in America. An amazing, influential guy that really was a guy that very much single-handed began putting Washington, D.C. In the, in the map. And, and then I got uh, Patrick Monaghan who was telling me very funny stories about every single world leader. But because I didn't know he was a senator, I thought really he was not very logical in his demeanor <laughs> until I found out three, four weeks later that he was the great senator that was admired by many and probably loved almost by all. And, you know, he even became a great friend and, and, and always will have a, a word of advice. So that was Haleo back in 93, in a place that was not a lot of people in downtown, Penn Quarter. And that I saw the potential of a restaurant next to a theater like the Shakespeare Theater and then later on the, the Bryson Center, how a restaurant can become super helpful to help a neighborhood find its DNA. 
restaurants is what they are sometimes today in Washington and across America. Anchors of improving a neighborhood almost one meal at a time. How is the experience of running your own restaurant different than what you've done before? What, what, what skills did it need that were new? Well, in 1993, I was hired to be the head chef, but probably I was the most ill-prepared 23-year-old chef in the history. Technically, I was fired a couple of times. From Haleo? Uh, yeah, technically. <laughs> so I was, I was, they kept changing my titles. The titles kept becoming longer, and it was kind of funny. For me, it was great, too, because I had freedom. I always learned that freedom and, and time freedom is one of the biggest assets you can have as a person. As a chef, sometimes it's a task that you have to be there. You are there fighting the war every day. You cannot go. When you are consulting chef, all of a sudden you are able to, hmm, now I'm consulting. Uh, I have more time to see the world from a different angle and different lens. But I know I was super ill-prepared. I think now I'm 47, I'm, I'm still ill-prepared to run a kitchen. I always knew what my assets are, but what my weaknesses are. I think one of the biggest lessons I always learn is that if you are super aware of your weaknesses and you don't mind to share them with the people you love and your team, people above you or people under you, is when you really become an important asset. I think understanding our weaknesses is one of the, uh, of the, of the things we should be always teaching everybody, almost embracing them. What are your weaknesses? I cannot focus more than five minutes in something because every, everything I do is new ground for new ideas. So for me, it's almost like seeds. So that's another what I'm doing is use new ideas popping up of this one thing. So I have a hard time just concentrate in the one thing because I'm already seeing the opportunities of doing that one thing. I'm very quick. I, I love the new, another new opportunity and I keep running the one, but I jump into the new one. So I manage this by making sure that every time we are into one project, great people are focused on that project. Allows me to keep moving from opportunity to opportunity. But if I didn't do that, probably today, I wouldn't have a great company with 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 uh, over a couple of thousands of employees and 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 twenty something restaurants in six seven cities. But I've done it because I had always a great team that kept allowing me not being so focused. What are your principles for hiring? How do you find great people? Well, we believe that food can change the world. And we do this feeding the few, but we're trying to be doing this feeding the many. As we talked at the beginning with Ball Central Kitchen and our support as a company and myself as an individual of organizations like DC Central Kitchen, led by my courting here in D.C., or L.A. Kitchen, led by Robert Egger, and has been there trying to say, yes, we want to make money in our restaurants and feeding people. We can improve a city, but we cannot only feed the few. We have to feed the many. I think somehow I never thought about that, but this tickles down. People know, and people want to be with organizations that they aim uh, for more beyond use making money or running a great restaurant, that you don't want only be running your own life, but you want to try to improve the lives of others. Why the, the people want to be coming to work with us, I really don't know. I think everyone in my company, we don't run it as a pyramid. We run it very flat. 
everybody knows who is the boss in the edge department. But even if you see my office, it's a very big open space where everybody sits and you don't, you will not know because it's not like anybody has a bigger office than anybody. We almost have no offices. So we, we run it very flat. And so everybody can be reaching anybody. It's not like you have to be climbing the mountain to try to make it to the top, mm-hmm. to share a good idea. We don't have a mountain. We, we have a fairly flat surface. And that flat surface makes people being very happy, I think, to be with us. But that's a good, that's a good explanation of why good people want to work with you. But when you are choosing, when you are, are trying to find somebody who can open Haleo Las Vegas or who can run minibar when you're doing other things, how do you make choices between people? What are the traits that you found predict success for your organization? It's very funny because in this DNA, you will say that I want to hire the best, most prepared chefs or cooks. But sometimes I learn that I create my company sometimes hiring guys that one of them was five years of his life in the guerrilla in Nicaragua. I had no idea of cooking. And another guy that was working on a garbage company in the streets of Bogota. But was the guys I had back when I began. And I began learning that. Obviously, when I began, you had to learn the entire LaRouche gastronomic to be a cook. So many techniques can take you 10 years of your life and still you don't know anything. And this was only French. Now you have Indian and Mexican and Chinese and Peruvian and American classic regional. Now to be a cook is just impossible. You need 24. You need to be like a spook on, on, on a Star Trek. You, you, need to be, you need to be able to live 500 years and still you will not be able to learn everything. So I began trying to make it simplifying it and giving people like a small kitchens spaces that they will learn their five dishes and make them super successful on those five dishes. The only thing I was always asking those guys, just give your best every single minute. Because then we can get deeper in, in the traces of a true leader. And sometimes the traces of a true leader is a true follower. When you're able to tell the guys who's believe in me and give you best, and they are a really effective follower, even when the kitchen is going down. But still, they keep doing what you told them to do. And you end and you finish service and you succeed. That's the time of guys I want next to me. Because they've been a good follower. Many of them, eventually, even if they don't know it inside their heart, they'll end being a super great leader. And that's what we ask people. Use, be yourself. Be genuine. Give your best and from that, you achieve a lot of things. Obviously, do I want the best prepared cooks and the best prepared chefs? Yes. But even if today you hear some candidates saying that America is going down and that the unemployment is very high, people of America, restaurateurs, chefs like me, we cannot hire people. So it's not enough people to be hired. So for me, I'm able to try to make somebody successful, even if that person never got formal culinary training. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that you are not being able to find as many people as you need in an economy that has been been rough? In my case, we we have what we call E-Verify. I did it consciously, purposely. We always hire everybody following the rules of... E-Verify is an immigration status verification Of the land with E-Verify is even more strict. Uh, You really check to make sure that 
everybody says who they think, who they say they are. And this brings the great equation of what a restaurant or what the restaurant industry or what a chef like me has to do with immigration reform. If I cannot hire people and I want to grow and I want to keep opening restaurants, helping the American economy and bringing taxes that we need to keep paying for the infrastructures that America needs. But there is not enough uh, workforce. But then we know that it's 11 million undocumented. What is every senator and congressman doing that is still to this day we didn't pass a good comprehensive reform that will allow business like me to be able to hire people that they love this country, that they've been part of the DNA of this country, that they've been working hard to this day, making this country amazing every day, but that somehow they're ghosts of the system. They're there. They're probably uh, working in your lawn. They're probably serving you in a restaurant or cooking your meal, or maybe the salad that the senator is about to eat in Congress has been picked by an undocumented. Why we don't let America keep growing by use bringing in those undocumented that will keep moving America forward. You usually verify, but if tomorrow for the rest of the restaurant industry, every unauthorized immigrant in the country left, what would happen to America's restaurant industry? If undocumented of America... All disappeared that, tomorrow, all left tomorrow. That will we'll say we stop cooking for a week. Yeah, probably it's a lot of restaurants that you like that you will not be able to be eating today. And with that, I mean the farmers that pick up your broccoli that you love so much, the guy that is delivering uh, your groceries. So you will be super surprised what will happen to America because those 11 plus million undocumented are there, are real, and they are helping move America forward. So I think it's about time that we are giving them the opportunity to be part of the American dream. And don't mix that with having safe borders. Everybody wants safe borders. I want safe borders. I have three daughters. I don't want anybody coming into my house. I don't want anybody to be coming into my country. But let's be smart about it and let's create a true immigration system that is a revolving door. Who wants to be away from their home? Nobody. Who wants to be away from their family? Nobody. Who wants to move away from their towns? Nobody. Give people in Latin America or any part they're coming, give them the three, four, five, six month visa to come to pick up our corn, our okra, our cotton to make our shirts, whatever we need in the farming industry. And when they finish that task and the money they made and the money they saved, they're going to go back to the country because they know that revolving door immigration is going to allow them to come back next year to do the same thing. And the system will solve itself, will improve America production will handle itself. That's the true wall. The revolving door is the true wall. A door that allows people to come and go because they know America needs them and they need the job. But we don't have that. We don't give enough visas to cover the needs of our farmers. We don't have enough visas to cover the needs of our restaurants. We don't have enough visas to cover many needs that America have. And it's about time we change this. And to just draw out something you're saying there, there's a lot of evidence that as we made border security tougher in recent decades, the people who used to come and go back came and stayed. And so a lot of the border enforcement has been, in some ways, if what you're concerned about is having an undocumented or unauthorized population, has been counterproductive. Because rather than people coming for temporary jobs, they came, they stayed, they brought families. It became a, a big 
class. It's one of the ways in which I think folks who feel like people have intuitions about what will work in immigration policy, they're often exactly wrong. I would say I totally agree. I think if our immigration policy of certain candidate is to bring an impossible nonsense wall, instead of investing in the betterment of the lives of those people on the other side of that wall, that is an area of opportunity. Improve the lives of others. And all of a sudden, you are improving people's life. You're giving an opportunity to American companies to be exporting goods to areas that they're doing better. The safety of America is really taken care of. Go back to Europe. Go back to Middle East. Go back to the Mediterranean. Take a look at what's happening. If people are hungry, if people are desperate to make sure that their children have a plate of food, it's not father or mother on the wall, on the wall that will stop at the wall. And this is the reality of the world we live in. I don't want to go back to the medieval times where people were living with money. They were living inside a castle. Castles are medieval. Medieval times now were not precisely one of the good moments of humanity. Let's break down the castles. Let's bring down the walls. And let's keep investing in ways for the betterment of everyone's life. Americans, but then Everybody that lives around us is the destiny of America to keep leading the way. Yes, to improve the things at home that need to be improved, but then also making sure that we create opportunities to others overseas because those opportunities are going to be creating jobs in America too, giving services to those people around the world. So this is the new world, a world that goes down and a world that we use in any case to build hospitals, infrastructure, schools restaurants, you name it. That's the way to be using walls, to build things that achieve growth for a better world. Use one project at a time. So you went from having one restaurant having, you said, 27? Well, if we start counting all the beefsteaks, boom. Yeah. yeah. The number begins uh, the growing. Beefsteak is a restaurant. Yeah. Uh, I, I've eaten there. I paid for, I paid for yes, food. It was great. Yes. What are the skills you need to run 27 restaurants? Versus the ones you need to run one. The skill you have to have is being a great guy hiring. How I, much of your time do you spend recruiting and hiring? I will say that every minute I'm hiring, because every time I'm talking with somebody and I'm looking at them at the eyes, is a way to tell them you matter and I hope you join me. But I don't do the work interviewing people. I'm quite a bad cook. That's not me. <laughs> I'm looking at you at the eyes right now, but <laughs> but maybe maybe one day we can write a book about food together, and this is a way oh, to be hiring. You, sure. you see, always uh, be recruiting. We we all need to be there. We are. I'm always recruiting. Obviously, I have great people that that's what they do in a professional, sophisticated way. But I'm telling you that the hiring is because you know my partner and I, Rob Wilder, as we were growing, we we saw that we needed more. And we were able to hire a great CEO that came from a super big company. She was the president of Ruby Tuesdays. She was almost open over 700 restaurants for Ruby Tuesdays. She's still quite young. Kimberly Grant, she's the CEO of the company. The company is running great, and everybody is telling me, Jose, you're running a great company. And then I laugh, and I tell them, yeah, right. <laughs> I have no clue how I'm running my company anymore. Sometimes I told you before, if you control your weaknesses, you are a great true leader. 
In my case, I want to believe I'm a good leader because I know that I know not enough to be doing that. And just being able to recruit people like that is probably a good asset to have. But she and her team, and obviously my my, my partner and I, uh, we keep being part of the company in many ways. But I try to be more and more focused on what I'm good at, which is creativity, rallying the teams, being the visionary of what's next. But I have good people that tell me, Jose, I don't think that's the right move next. So having people that are able to challenge you and tell you that maybe your vision is not the right one, that's very important. I think we all need this kind of person next to us so that tell us, hello, uh, maybe this is not the best decision or you are not going in the right direction or you are. And it's also important as a leader to be able to process that and take action. Sometimes they may be right. Sometimes you think they are not. But still being able to listen and process that information, I think, is very important. How do you make decisions about whether to take some of the restaurant opportunities that come your way? How do you make a decision about whether or not to open a restaurant in Dubai or another one in Vegas or one in New York? Is there a metric you use? I mean, do you have a do you have a consistent test, or is it you look at each? Yeah. It varies the reasons of why you open restaurants sometimes, or the reasoning behind. One of the reasons I opened China Chilcano, my new Peruvian restaurant, which I I love, is one of my favorites between my Mexican Oyamel and my Spanish Jaleo on Seventh Street between the and E. I opened that one because I was very afraid who was going to be coming there, and. And I wanted a restaurant that was creative and from a small owner. I didn't want a super big chain going next to me in that street. Oh, interesting. So, so that one of the reasons I opened was defensive. Uh-huh. For me, it's good to have them near. But, you know, Wagamama was supposed to be coming there. They're a big company. Who was you said? Wagamama. Oh, right. That, so, that was almost going to open for like three years. Three, four years. Yeah. And I was happy with that one because I thought it was a cool brand that uh-huh. was going to to add a nice, cool dimension to downtown D.C. Yeah. I was super happy with that mama. But when they said they were not coming, I was like, oh, my God, who is going to be coming? So who would you be concerned about? You know, companies, restaurants that don't add anything uh-huh. to the food scene of, of Penn Quarter or to Washington. You know, uh, I mean, it's, it's great people working in every type of restaurant, big or small. Yeah. But, you know, it's certain restaurants are great for big malls and certain restaurants are not great for an area that they want to be keep being so, a great area. So now. it's important for your business that people continue to think Penn Quarter in the area you're in is a place of good restaurants. If it becomes Correct. theme park restaurants. Correct. Then there we have Great Apron, which I love. You have great hot dogs, great American cooking. We have Rasika. I mean, uh-huh. I have them all use. Walking distance one second, I like to have those restaurants around me. Why? Because those restaurants make me better, and I want to believe my restaurants make them better. At the end, we're a family. So for me, this is important. But then for Beefsteak, yes, we have metrics. We have a company that has mapped the cities we want to go on. We have the system that if we are in L.A., probably we're going to do more in L.A. We're in Miami. We're going to do more in Miami. We already opened in Philly, one beefsteak. We're going to do more restaurants in Philly. Now we have a very smart strategy. And yes, we have those cities kind of map to know the type of neighborhoods we want to be based on the type of restaurants we run. So on that is uh, very much like an algorithm. Yes, it's very sophisticated, very mathematical. 
we take that data seriously. But at the end of the day, even with those numbers and that data, it's nothing like your brain connected with your heart. Feeling still is key in business. In my business, in any business, not everything just can be numbers, the feeling, the human touch, instinct. It's something that probably is still what is, even with artificial intelligence, is something that still is going to be super difficult to recreate. So I'd love to talk about beefsteak. So for people who don't know, beefsteak is a fast casual restaurant you opened up. It is almost entirely vegetable-oriented without branding itself that way. You can get some salmon and, and some other things there. but Tiny. Tiny. But it is almost entirely a vegetable-oriented restaurant without saying that, right? It doesn't sell mm-hmm. itself as health food. It doesn't sell itself as... Uh, it's local or organic, yep. but we have a little bit of all. Why did you decide to do that? Well, I wanted to be in the fast casual business. Why? Because the question is simple. Who do you want to feed America? A chef or a clown, with all due respect to clowns or, or <laughs> companies that may use those clowns to attract young boys and girls. When you uh, say it that way, it sounds very sinister. Well, uh, <laughs> clowns, as we know, lately they are becoming yeah, very sure. sinister. Big so clown that's another, another news that I hope uh, will go away. But the truth is that I do believe you want America to be fed by chefs. And the issue is that great chefs there that we know, but then there's great chefs that nobody knows. And they're hardworking people that work long hours trying to do the best they do with the, in the place they are. can be a fast food restaurant or can be. But the truth is that I do believe that in the same way you put the best possible architects to, to keep building the, the great buildings we live on or our engineers to build our infrastructure or, or doctors to, to create the best discoveries and health solutions to keep keeping America and the world safe. Uh, I think we need to have more chefs in the way we're going to be feeding America. And chefs like me, we feed the few. And we have to have more to say how to feed the many. And I do believe, and the trend is not trend anymore, it's going to keep growing, is more and more chefs trying their luck bringing their expertise in moving into the fast casual. Why? Because fast casuals, you can open many with not a lot of money. Possibilities are endless. And we saw Chipotle, Steve Ells, which I'm a big fan of. And I'm sorry what happened to him, but I think Chipotle is one of the great stories, success stories, where a chef that graduated from the Culinary Institute of America mm-hmm. created a new type of fast food. Washington, D.C., we've seen great concepts that just were created here. The boys at Sweet Green, that they've done an amazing job. The guys at Cava, that they... And those are concepts you're going to be seeing moving across America. But why go nearly meatless? I went meatless because I saw the spectrum of the offering. Interesting. And I did it because, obviously, business opportunity. But before business opportunity was a true belief that we need to be bringing more vegetables and fruits to America. Has a lot of issues still. I have a lot of problems and questions I need to resolve, like why for me it would be cheaper almost to give you a pound of ground meat that give you a pound of zucchini or a pound of carrots. It's unbelievable that the meat will be cheaper than the vegetables. Is the reality. Olive oil is expensive. Lemons are expensive. Uh, is wild, broccoli though. is expensive. But my costs are not precisely cheap. 
but for me, it's a learning experience that allows me now to speak with more knowledge about the issues that America faces to feed itself in a healthier way, in a better way, in a sustainable way. And that's why I did vegetable. I took probably the most difficult challenge. And let's see if I am successful. It's been a while since you and I have spoken. And in that time, I've become, and, and Annie's become, much more involved in animal suffering questions. Mm-hmm. And the cheap meat issue, it's such a fascinating part of American discourse because for so long, and, and correctly, we were, we were very concerned about the cost of food. And so anything you could do to make food cost less became positive. And cheap meat, as far as I can tell, what you have done is you have put the cost onto the animals and onto the environment. So the two things you do to make meat really, really, really cheap is to make animals suffer really terribly and to really fuck up the environment. (laughs) But it's also at the same time a very hard thing to say that meat should be more expensive, right? That is a very elitist, regressive, in some ways cruel thing to say, particularly if you're saying it from the perspective of someone who can afford expensive meat. And it's a very tricky part of a very important conversation in my view that on the one hand cheap meat is a i think it's a bad thing it's a morally bad thing and on the other hand affordable food is a really good thing yep. and you somehow need to be able to balance those two questions again pragmatism is going to win the day but we don't have enough time in this podcast to to analyze first i'm going to tell you you should be if you didn't do it already read uh, in defense of beef that was written by the wife of Mrs. Neiman and the wife of uh, Bill Neiman from Neiman Ranch. Mm-hmm. That probably is this legendary figure on bringing better quality meat at the right price, grown in the right way to America. So you should be reading this book because there it's, uh, his wife is vegetarian. And it's amazing that she, she married one of the legendary <laughs> beef <laughs> traffickers of 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 America. And I say traffickers in a good way. He's a, an amazing man and his wife is amazing. And so that book, number one, me, me uh, you know, one of the meats he serves is Iberico. Iberico is a pork that grows semi-wild in Spain, in the western part near Portugal. And they are a black pig, very Haiti. And between September and December, they live in an area that is a lot of acorn trees and thinas that the acorns fall to the floor and they double down their weight eating those acorns mm-hmm. and drinking water and doing a lot of exercise and moving through the forest. Probably is, is, is an amazing thing to see. The big question we face here, can we feed the world growing pigs like that? Well, if... Uh, consumption of meat keeps growing, growing, and growing in countries like India and China? The answer is simple, no. How are we going to be changing the minds of people? You don't change the minds of people in one day, in one year. It can take many, many generations. Like, seems meat consumption is going down in America. Seems is going down. But then that means that we should be eating less of better quality? Yes, but then that meat is going to be expensive. In my bazaar restaurant in Las Vegas, bazaar meat... I will not say it's a steakhouse, but it's a great place that we celebrate meat. We're serving cattle that is six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. And you're going to tell me it's six, seven, eight years old, eating grasses. Well, I don't serve big portions. I serve 
big portions, but to be shared by many. So I want you only to eat a little piece. At the mm. beginning, I give you a lot of vegetables. <laughs> I give you some seafood. Yeah. Give you. So is the trend going to be eat less meat of higher quality? Yes. But this is one of the biggest challenges we face as humanity. As in Europe and America, since we are more conscious about eating less fish, making sure that the species are sustainable, maybe eating less meat, making sure it's higher quality, the cost of that fish and that meat is really growing. How much are you able to source humanely? How difficult is it to find meat in the quantities you need and in the varieties you need Listen, and be certain that the animals are First, well? I think we, we have to be describing what, what the term is. And probably until we don't describe that and everybody agrees on the table, it's going to be mm -hmm. because we could argue that anything you kill ain't very humane anymore. But at the same time is me, I have this big problem, me, big personal problem. And maybe I should be even crazy sharing this. But I love dogs and, and my grandfather used to have dogs. And, but one of the reasons I don't have is because I've seen hunger in the world. And when I see the amount of money that goes invested in feeding our dogs and maintaining them healthy, that I believe is a great thing to do. But when I see the money and I see that if we will put that money to feed and improve the lives of people suffering around the world, the world will be a more peaceful place. I have a hard personal time with this one. <laughs> but I understand that everybody is right to do whatever they want in their homes, and they should. But I, I think about those things sometimes at night. And I cannot finger point to anybody or blame anybody because I, I really want to have a dog and probably I'll end having one. But if I'm trying to be pragmatic, we spend billions of dollars in feeding animals of company. Some ones are totally needed for helping some people in mm -hmm. need. But others you have it because you know, because you want to have it. Well, we have children in Syria dying without nothing to eat. So for me, this is very hard. So to me to be talking about humanely raised cattle when we have thousands of children dying every week, I have a hard time also having the same conversation. Even I understand that some people care about that deeply, and they should. But take a look what PETA did. PETA was super unhappy with PETA because I think sometimes what they're doing is super extreme. We had one of the best farms of ducks to produce foie gras in the history of the world. That farm was an example of how every farm in the world should be treating animals. Understanding that at the end of the day, still we killed them. Yeah. They were, they were feeding the ducks. There was no force anymore. They were, they were treating the ducks. PETA closed that farm and they left 120 people without jobs. They got the low hanging fruit and they claimed success. We shut down the duck factory. If I was PETA and I was the leader of PETA and I was smart, I would say, Let's use this farm to show what every other farm in America should be. And once they do that, I will move to the next stage. You see, at the end, everybody has different goals in life. Right. And the important thing is that more often we sit around a table like this one. We all bring our views and try and always to be finding that pragmatism that I feel we don't see in our lives often. But Peter, on that was totally wrong. And they closed a great farm that was supposed to be the poster 
of what every single farm was supposed to become in America with chickens, with beef, with pork, anything else. What do you think about the lab-grown meat stuff? Could you imagine <laughs> in 15 years using that in a restaurant? You know, you have to be careful these days to say anything because you may regret it. So I, I'm not going to say never, ever. Mm -hmm. To me, it's great to see that these great minds and good investments in Silicon Valley are going into these type of things. But if you tell me what may be happening five, six, seven centuries from now and what humanity is going to be eating, how are we going to be eating? Are we going to use receive our daily intake of calories in a pill? That's it. This may happen. Soylent. Soylent is, is <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to say it's Darth Vader because Darth Vader, <laughs> we all know, became a good guy. It's probably like the Soylent is like the emperor. Uh, I really hope that Soylent goes bankrupt now that it's being bought even by a bigger company. But maybe humanity moves in that direction, but without a doubt, we will lose an important part of what define who we are. The food that we eat, how we eat it defines who we are as humanity. I think like if humanity in five centuries ends eating a pill for their daily doses of protein and calories, Humanity will lose a very important part of what being human is. Briat Savarani in 1826, the French philosopher, wrote his book, Tell Me What You Eat and I'll Tell You Who You Are. And also he wrote, The future of the nations will depend on how they feed themselves. Humanity will not be what it is if we end eating this type of foods and ending everything on a pill. And I will be very worried for the future of the nations because nothing will be safer than making sure that without now being a super environmentalist, but take care of the soil, take care of the land, take care of the oceans, and humanity will be fairly safe. Can we feed humanity in a lab? Probably yes. We will be able to provide calories? Probably yes. Will be calories without the soul? Totally. So speaking of how a nation feeds itself, what is the dish that you think everybody should be able to cook? Just as a basic ability to, to feed themselves, what is a dish that people should should be able to, to pull off? I always dream of this one pot that will feed the world. Mm -hmm. To me, a pot almost is, uh, nothing is more beautiful than maternity. And I have three daughters. And that moment of, of, of and your wife, your partner, you giving birth to a child and, and how during nine months very much begins being nothing to little cells that meet each other and becomes a beautiful baby. If you take a look, many of the pots I have in my home, there are this terracotta that when you put everything in there, looks like a bomb, looks like, and it's used water and, and some beans and, or lentils or chickpeas and four, five, six hours of slow cooking gives birth to a beautiful a beautiful dish, you know, like a beautiful creature. I say terracotta because I love terracotta, no? Prometheus very much created man out of, of clay. And Prometheus also gave man the control of fire. So to me, that one pot, the people are able to feed themselves and their family with the water that is part of who we are. And some beans or lentils or chickpeas that they are super important for 
for feeding, for giving us nutrients, and a little piece of meat that gives flavor. That's the one dish everybody should be able to cook. Use a very nice, beautiful, elegant stew of, of your favorite bean that you can be doing other things as the pot is, is creating that, that what, dish with a little bit of meat. And, what is that dish for you? What, would you, what, what do you put in that version of the dish yourself? Well, it's funny because this morning before I came, I put a kilo of chickpeas in water to cook tomorrow. And that will be chickpeas. It'll be carrots, potatoes, some onion, one leek, a little bit of celery. But that's more to give flavor. We will eat the carrots and the potatoes, the other, and the leeks, the celery, not. I will bring this to a boil. I will put a head of garlic. I'll have a little piece of bacon that has been salted. I think I have a little bit of bill shank that will go in. And we have a little bit of ground meat that will make this kind of uh, meatball with garlic bread and parsley and some milk and one egg. And this we will boil for four, five, six hours. We'll take away the broth. We'll add some pasta. We'll eat the broth, beautiful, tasty, the broth with the pasta. Then we'll, so we'll serve the chickpeas with the vegetables and olive oil and a little bit of salt. And then we'll finish with a little bit of the bacon uh, a little bit of the bill shank. Maybe I forgot chicken. Sometimes I put half a chicken. And and that will be the one pot that can feed the world. In this case, we have legumes. That is the big proportion. And the quantity of meat is lower. Mm-hmm. That should be the way to be feeding humanity. And more legumes. Next, follow by vegetables. And then supported by a little bit of meat. That's the one dish that we can be feeding Haiti. We can feeding the world. Just using the the local ingredients and their traditions. But the one pot that we f- will feed the world is something I'm always dreaming of because one pot, if you know what to do with that one pot, if you have the power to feed others, if you know how to feed others, you can really feed humanity by having that power. What's the best piece of advice you've gotten? Wow, that's a deep one. I think I read it more than, than was given. That's, I said it all the time, but really I believe in it sincerely. That's from Winston Churchill. Is this elevator where I used to live, the Landsberg in downtown DC, that in the elevator is almost like the elevator always spoke to me because they will put every day a piece of paper with the weather, boom, and they always will have a phrase of somebody. And always I was like living, like speaking to the elevator. And this phrase really connected with me in a day I was not having a very good day that said that, when you feel down, especially, you know, that success is going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. I think we all don't celebrate enough the good moments, and we make a super big deal of the bad moments. I think we need to compensate a little bit, and I think we need to start celebrating those failures. That's no matter what they are. They can be little. can be that you spilled your coffee when mm-hmm. you were trying to replenish your cup. That's a failure. How do you implement that? I find in my life, I find I'm described by that perfectly. And I I feel small failures much more heavily than I feel big successes. So how do you work on that negativity bias? I'm probably not the best guy to give advice on that because I do believe every single human being has more good than bad. But somehow we all have those instincts when we are let down. Sometimes religion is an answer to help humans to, to control those. But we all have those moments that we, in my case, you know, 
can be, I ask for eggs and my wife forgot to buy eggs and I make a big deal out of it. I can't do anything with anything else. I don't need to have X to eat in my family, but still I make a big deal out of it. You see, it can be, can be nothing, but sometimes humans, we explode by, by things that they are in context so small, right? So me, I try to have a happy thought or a thought of somebody else that with much less is happy. And that's why we began talking about Haiti, and that's what Haiti sometimes means to me, to Jose Andres. That I complain to my hotel desk that I don't have hot water on my shower when I go to New York. And in Haiti, is mothers and fathers that they don't have water to feed their newborn and may die out of cholera by drinking whatever water they were able to find. And when you put this in perspective and you pick up the phone to complain that you don't have. It's not like you cannot complain. Of sure you can. But then the way you will complain is different. It's not like you are entitled to. Like you should be thankful that actually you have something to watch yourself with that morning. So I try to be going to those things, to those moments of somebody else that doesn't have it as good as me. Because we are not perfect. We're human, but at the same time, we are full of good. We are f full of good feelings of trying to do the best we can for ourselves and to others. Sometimes the ghosts, the demons show up and we all work hard to try to control them. We see a candidate right now in the political campaign that he has no control of his demons in any way or form and now seems is the new way. No, this is not the new way. We all should be able to control our demons. You, you pulled out of his hotel and he's trying to sue you, right? Yeah, I think lawyers are handling this. <laughs> Me, I'm a happy boy with happy family, happy friends, happy guest. This election is not anymore about Republicans and Democrats. It has never been. This is about, you know, the forces of inclusion versus the forces of exclusion. And I believe... Is great people in the Republican Party and the Democrat Party that they believe in inclusion. But we have here one person that we don't know where it came from that believes in exclusion and where everything is wrong and everything is negative. And I've been observing America very closely the last few months. And I'm going to all types of places from West Virginia to the heart of Nevada. And, and I'm looking around. And I'm sure it's hungry people sometimes, unfortunately, and veterans that we are not giving enough support or elderly that they don't have a plate to eat. But there's a lot of good things happening in America. The fire stations taking care of our homes if there is a fire. The schools that are full of grandfathers going to pick up their children. Of, of Fourth of July that everybody is so proud to be American and, and be there celebrating with their family and loved ones. An amazing group of soldiers that they are around the world Sometimes protecting America and the world from future wars, but sometimes right now helping Haitians to get away after the terrible hurricane. It's a lot of great, amazing things happening in our communities. A really amazing small gestures that shows me that the world is a great world and that really works. But here we have somebody that keeps use pumping that everything is a disaster, that everything is not going right. And this is very far away from the truth. It's a lot of great things happening. Only we need to to be able to see through the good prism 
and just trying to improve the ones that don't work so well. And so here's the, the final question we ask everybody on this show. What are three books that you've read that influenced you that you think others should read? Wow. <laughs> it's like this. I never read three books. Well, one that was super important to me that I keep going back and back and back will be from John Steinbeck, The Pearl, which is a story of these uh, Indian somewhere in Central America that is an oyster hunter and and he's mistreated by the white men controlling his little tribe and, and his son is beaten by a scorpion and the, the drama unfolds and I was touched by the book because it's probably the first time I really realized the inequality that we had in this planet of ours. The Pell to me was... Uh, a very touching book, very easy reading, quick reading, fascinating writing. And to this day, I think I read it already two or three times. I really love this, this book. So those are not books that they are wow on in terms of. was a writer called Alas Clarín, Leopoldo Alas Clarín, who he was born 19th century, early 20th century, and he bought one short Cuento, a short story, which was called Adios Cordera. And the Cordera was a, a little um, bill that he kind of fell in love with and was telling the story of this little boy living in this rural area and how his best friend was this animal and how he saw that animal be taken away in a train to the big city to be sold and to be slaughtered. And it was a beautiful story that very much was telling you that the world was changing and was changing because, you know, already the telephone lines was arriving to his town and that was the way everybody was communicating and the train also was this thing uniting to very faraway places and, and through the eyes of the boy, that was a very beautiful way to say life forever is going to be changing. Be, be ready because... And you may not like what's coming because you are afraid, but you need to adapt because change is really happening. And this always, I, I love uh, the reading of this author, but that specifically short story is one that is still to this day reminds me of who I was when I was young and the little things that really touched me. And I will say that a book that really I read many times will be, I'm fascinated by, by a person like uh, Stephen Hawking. And the brief history of time was such a, such a fascinating way to just tell me who really, who I am. Mm -hmm. uh, that the scientist is, wild. is not telling you, I didn't saw what the universe I live is. I almost really told me who I am, who we all are. And I think nobody could be explaining something more complex in such a simple, direct, elegant way. So those are three that come to mind. It's always others, but you know, those are three that right now comes. And for me, they're very special in very personal ways. Jose Andres, thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
Thank you to Jose for spending the time. I thought that was a lot of fun. I hope you did too. Thank you to you for spending the time. I'm appreciative that you all give me an hour, hour and a half of your time every week. It, it's a great show of trust and it means a lot to me. And thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production that will return with another guest and another conversation next week. 